Well, growing up in New England, I was a bit of a sports fan, and we attended regularly Celtics games and Red Sox games. It was a, it was a great time to go with the family and friends down to watch various games live to see my heroes up close. And on more than one occasion, we would go and we would actually sneak down a little bit closer and sit in the, 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 the red box seats at Fenway that were left open because someone wasn't there yet or they had left early or whatever the case would be. Over and over again, I remember the little, I say little, that's probably nice, the, the older gentlemen that wore the little red suits and their white beards would come and they would tap us on the shoulder and they'd say, ticket please, to which we would show them our seats that were far away from where we were sitting and they would tell us, you know, young man, you have no right to be here, you need to go. And we would march up after our efforts were unsuccessful to sit down there a little bit closer. Similarly, in, on a far greater scale, we come to a book like the book of Revelation, specifically chapter 5, and I feel like we're getting tapped on the shoulder and someone is saying, you have no right to be here. You, you, you should not be in these seats to see what you see. We really do not have any right to see what we see and to read what we read. The exposure to what is taking place in Revelation chapter 5 is wholly an act of divine grace. It is God's benevolent love to us and mercy to us to allow us to even look at these things with our eyes and interact with these words and these realities. In my view, Revelation 5 is a mountain peak on the landscape of the Scriptures. For truly, all of the Bible is glorious. However, there is something particularly breathtaking about ascending the hills of the text this morning and breathing this rarefied air in the throne room of God. Something breathtaking about it. And even more so when you realize that the air you're breathing here is wholly an act of divine grace. It is God kindly letting us see these things and interact with them. So with this in mind, if you'd turn, if you're not already there, to the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation. And I say by way of just interrupt, in, introduction into the book here, a lot of times people are kind of intimidated by the book and I've heard one person say it's, it's intended to clarify and not mystify. Uh, there are a lot of things that may be hard to understand, but there are a lot of things we can understand uh, very easily. Um, so it does require some study. And one, one helpful means of trying to break apart the book a little bit is in chapter 1, verse 19, where it says, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. And Chapter 1 being the things that you have seen, chapters 2 and 3 being the things that are, and chapters 4 through 22 being the things that will take place after these things. So our text this morning is in the fifth chapter, so it is in the things that would be the future category. It comes right after a similar scene in chapter 4. If you keep your thumb in chapter 5 and just flip back over to chapter 4 just to see what is going on there. Chapter 4, verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. In the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you the things much that must take place after these things. So this is John the Apostle being ushered up to the presence of God. It says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. So if you can imagine the scene, there is the beloved apostle ushered into the presence of God there to see these things. 
And chapter 4 is all about the glory of God and the praise that is due Him as the Creator and the Sustainer of all things. It is, it is God Himself that receives the undiluted, unmitigated worship from His creation for His magnificent, unrivaled perfection and beauty. That's what we see in the fourth chapter. Now in chapter 5, we shift our emphasis from the Father to the Son, specifically His person and His work, who He is and what He's done. So chapter 4, the emphasis is laid upon the Father. In chapter 5, it is laid upon the Son. And both of these chapters are electric in their amplification of God's greatness and how wonderful He is. They just just light up as you read them. And the text for us this morning in chapter 5 really breaks up nicely for us into varied scenes or angles of emphasis. In fact, if you look at chapter 5, there are four, four times the same phrase in the Greek New Testament used, and it's translated, and I saw. So in verse 1, verse 2, verse 6, and verse 11, it nicely breaks out into these four scenes. And that's how we're going to approach it this morning. We're going to look at four scenes in John's jaw-dropping account of the throne room of God. Four various scenes where we're going to, we're going to hopefully understand better something of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and look at the first Christ-exalting scene here. It is this curiously intriguing scroll. It is in verse 1. The text says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. So first we read of John seeing this, this book. And when we read the word book in our Bibles, we probably think of a book like we would maybe buy at the bookstore, or maybe that would resemble our Bibles. But the the idea here in the the ancient culture would be that of a scroll that would be rolled up on two ends and rolled up towards the middle. The scrolls in biblical times were either made from papyrus or from animal skins. So you have the picture of a a scroll rolled up and, and it is here. And furthermore, the text says that the scroll is written on the inside and on the back. This is to say that the contents are overflowing out on the outside of the scroll. It's not just contained on the inside, which would be customary in the culture. It would actually be overflowing out, and it's written all over the back and on the inside. John is using this for emphasis. And furthermore, still it says that it is sealed up with seven seals. This is demonstrating the perfection, as the biblical number seven would be, resembling the perfection of the document, but then also the sealing of it being its security. So what are we to make of this scroll? Well, let's start first by asking the question, where is the scroll? Look again at verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. Well, who is on the throne? What is the Father? We just learned this in chapter 4. It is the Father that is on the throne, and he is sitting there on his throne, and according to John, this curious scroll is in his hand. So picture the scroll in the hand of God Almighty. If we were to put ourselves in John's sandals for a minute, I don't know if we'd be able to take this. I mean, the scroll is apparently very important, and we will see in due time that it is. It's garnering His attention. It's garnering the attention of all of heaven. It is garnering the Father's attention. It is sitting in His hand, and He is sitting on the throne. If there was an accompaniment CD here, it would get very loud. And you can just imagine the camera zooming in right on the hand of God the Father in this this curiously intriguing scroll that sits in His hand. What is the scroll? What What is this? Based upon what we see in this chapter, 
And then the subsequent chapters, I would understand that this scroll is the impending judgment of all wickedness that is ready to be poured out on the earth and the ultimate God's bringing about of the restoration of all things. We read in the successive chapters of God unleashing His wrath upon the planet, the wrath of the Lamb. When the scroll of this when this scroll is open, the process whereby the planet is purged from its wickedness in the full inauguration of the kingdom of Christ is ultimately realized. So inside this scroll is all of the wrath of the Lamb and in the ushering in of His kingdom. One Bible teacher noted concerning the scroll, the seventh seal contains the seven trumpet judgments. And the seventh trumpet judgment contains the seven bowls of wrath. So here, in this scroll, is a comprehensive account of the future wrath of the Lamb. This is a jam-packed scroll, if you will. Everything that is going to be unleashed in the rest of the book of Revelation is right here in this book, in this scroll. Once it has been unloosed and executed, the sin-stained planet will be restored. Creation's groaning will subside and the rightful owner will be clear. The contents of this scroll truly are unfathomable. Well, we've seen a little bit about the scroll. Now let's, let's continue on here as we, as we look at these Christ-exalting scenes. Let's look at the exhaustive search for the one who is worthy to open this scroll. And this is in verses 2 through 5. John writes, And I saw a strong angel, verse 2, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Now we're introduced to the one of the many characters that will meet in this chapter. And this is a strong angel with a loud voice. There are a lot of strong and loud pictures in the book of Revelation. But this individual is not known by a name. There's a lot of speculation on who he is. We don't know. But we know two things. He's strong and he's loud. And he needs his loudness. He needs his, 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 his strong, thunderous voice because of what he's going to do. He has something to say. And what is his proclamation? Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? He is consumed with this book that is in the Father's hand. It's driven back to the, the book, the scroll. This angel, this, law, this loud, strong angel, he wants it open. And he declares with this God-given loud voice, with his strength to declare his far-reaching voice all over the planet, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? He's doing an exhaustive search for someone to come and to open it. The term translated worthy here traditionally brings with it the idea of being able to balance something out. It is a, a weightiness. Who is weighty enough to open this? It's used of a scale to bring it to proper weight. It is as if he is saying, who is qualified to open this book? Who has the moral capacity to approach God's own throne and take it from him? And furthermore, who has the power to execute its contents? That is this question that is just resounding as he continues to ask it. Look at verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. His exhaustive search is not just in heaven, but it is on the earth and under the earth. That is to say, everyone who has ever lived, everyone who ever is in heaven, on earth, he's asking, can you open it? Can you come? Can you please come and take the scroll? I want the scroll opened. And no one is worthy. Nobody is able. No one is qualified. Nobody is found to be worthy to approach 
the throne of the Father and say, yes, I'll take it and I'll execute its contents. I can do that. It's a deafening silence that is only interrupted by the Apostle. Look at verse 4. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. John begins to cry. He's overcome with emotion. Well, why? Why is he so upset? Look again at the text, verse 4. No one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. What does he mean? Why is he so upset? Well, if, if this book contains the subsequent judgment of God upon all ungodliness, and, and it is the catalyst to bring about the final restoration of all things, and ultimately the, the exaltation of Jesus Christ and the, and the magnifying of God the Father. This is, this is the book. This is the big deal. This is what everyone's been longing for, is the accomplishment of what is in here. If it cannot happen... And John knows there's no one among men or even angels who can come and take this book and execute its contents. He's distressed. He's emotionally torn up. To John, the purposes of God seem to be thwarted. It's as if he's he's overcome with emotion. It's the same phrase that's used of Peter's response in the midst of his denial. It is a loud cry. By way of application, I'd ask you, what, what makes you cry? John is emotionally distraught, visually shaken up over the prospect of sin not being dealt with, over the glory of God not being vindicated, over the restoration of the redeemed not being realized. He he just can't contain it and he cries. When's the last time you with white-knuckled resolve have just prayed, thy kingdom come so hard that a tear flies out of your eyes? One of you struggled with sin so much because you want to see the Savior magnified that you are overcome with tears. When do you find yourself teary-eyed for the glory of God? Think of all the gallons of tears that have been shed by the saints throughout the ages, crying for the vindication of God's name, for the rescue of God's people, for the punishment of God's enemies. From all the psalms like Psalm 13 that cry out to the heavens, How long, O Lord? As it's just, his, the scroll is just covered with his tears. How long to all the followers of Jesus that may have lined the track to the, to the stake to be burned, that have said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. There are gallons of these tears. But these cries were attached to time and hope and the character of God. Here, John comes to the end here. He's at the, in the throne room. And it appears like there's no hope and the end of the road is at hand, if you will. And he sees the throne. He sees the scroll. He knows it's just inches away to it all being executed and done about. And there's no one that can come. He sees the scroll and its battle plan for bringing about the consummation of the ages. And he witnesses the exhaustive search throughout the universe and that there is nobody who's worthy. Now he's, he's broken up. He's crying. He's upset. He's crying for judgment. But this judgment is not isolated. It is, it is connected to the purging of the planet of its sin in the bringing about of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I think we, we pray through the back door for the kingdom to come. John's praying through the front door. We pray, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. We want the kingdom to come. We want to reign with Jesus. And that is awesome. That is great. And that is how we need to pray. But John says, 
I'm seeing through the book of Revelation, I'm seeing judgment that needs to come. I need to see the glory of God vindicated. I need to see your justice vindicated. I need to see you come out and deal out retribution to those who do not obey the gospel, as Paul says in Thessalonians. So he sees this through judgment, but judgment is not the end. Judgment is a means to the end where Christ will ultimately be exalted. And that's what's in the book. And that's what he wants opened. But there's no one found worthy to open it. So John cries loudly. But in verse 5, John's interrupted by one of the elders who tell him, stop weeping. And before we go any further, I think it's just probably helpful to nail down a couple of who these guys are in the book of Revelation, particularly chapter 5 here. There is, there is some controversy, people, who are the elders, who are the four living creatures. And just, just quickly, I just want to define them a bit as we go forward. Basically, as far as the elders go, there are two, two main views. Either these guys are angels or they're, they're re- some representation of believers, either the nation of Israel, 12, and 12 being the, the church. And I, what I did is just try to study the book of Revelation and see how this term is used in the book and, and then r- read a bunch of guys to see how I line up with them. And when I read the book of Revelation, I find these individuals to seem more like angels, specifically a group of angels that seem to be distinct from the ordinary class of angels. I mean, throughout Revelation, the elders are distinguished from the saints. We see that in chapter 7, chapter 14, chapter 19. And throughout the book, the elders find themselves grouped together with angels rather than men. They find themselves even distinguished from other angels. Chapter 7, chapter 19. So it seems more consistent to me, in the light of the book of Revelation, take these as angels rather than to make them some type of symbolic representation of Israel or the church. I don't, just don't think the context calls for it. Furthermore, these living creatures also seem to be angels. And they seem to be representative of exactly what Isaiah would talk about in chapter 6 and what Ezekiel would talk about as he, as he talked about the cherubim. Even their name, living beings, was used almost interchangeably with cherubim and Ezekiel. So there are many similarities between the Old Testament prophets and the book of Revelation. So these living creatures also appear to be a distinct group of angels, have close proximity to the throne, and they are, they are consumed with the justice, the administration of God's justice. And there's far more to say about that. If you, if you have any more questions, you can email Pat when he gets back from vacation. He'd love to talk about it. No, I'm serious. If you want to talk about it, I, I, I'm overcome with information right now, so we can talk after. But what does the angel do in verse 5? One of, one of the elders said to me, he grabs, he grabs John by the back of the neck and he says, stop crying, right? Look at him. He says, weep no more. Tells him to stop crying. It's unnecessary for you to cry now. And he uses this term, behold. It's a, it's a victorious term. It's, it's listen to me. Behold. It's a, it, it, there's something I need to tell you. And he says, there's, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. So this, this elder grabs John's tear-stained face and he turns it to behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. He directs him to Christ. He tells him to stop crying. He says, sorrow is not fitting here, but rather joy in light of what we will find out about the excellency of Christ. He refers to Jesus as the lion of the tribe of David. I'm sorry, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. This is a reference to the, the book of Genesis, chapter 49, where Judah is described as a lion's cub. Furthermore, in emphasizing the, the kingly nature from the tribe of Judah. It says in verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff 
from between his feet until the tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Jesus himself is from the tribe of Judah in the ultimate fulfillment of this divine declaration that Judah's favored son will be a king and will forever hold the scepter. It is Christ that he's referring to. The term lion is used to demonstrate Christ's peerless strength, his courage, and his majesty. And furthermore, the text goes on to say, Behold, not just looking at the lion of the tribe of Judah, but the root of David. It's another messianic term. He is, he's heaping these terms on Christ. Major Old Testament theme here in terms of the messianic prophecy. Jesus' headship to bring about the, the Davidic kingdom. We see in passages like Isaiah chapter 11, speaking of this, the shoot that will spring up from the stem of David. So John is combining these two terms here, or the elder is, I should say, in John writing, to demonstrate the, the regal or kingly right of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the king. He's coming through the tribe of Judah, through David. The elders reminding him of who Jesus is. He's reminding him of the one whom he laid his head against his chest and even listened to his heartbeat as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's reminding him who he is. Do you remember? He's the lion from the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David. And then he goes on to proclaim what Jesus has done, not just who he is, but what he has done. Look what it says. The lion from the tribe of Judah, verse 5, the root of David, has overcome. This is He has conquered. The term overcome expresses a victory. He has won the victory. It refers to the victory won by Christ over God's enemies at the cross. The king has, dem- has defeated the enemies. He has overcome. God's people in Revelation are called overcomers. That's because Christ has been victorious and he has overcome. He's the victorious one. Furthermore, John says, He can open the scroll. Look what it says. He has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. As a result of this victory, as a result of His work, His conquering, He can open the scroll and its seven seals. That is to say, Jesus is eligible. He's worthy. He meets the qualifications. He can come and He can approach the Father's throne and He can take it. And not only can He take it, but He has the power to execute its contents. This is remarkable. That is what the elder means when he says, open the scroll in the seven seals. He's not only to come and to take it, but also to, to do what it calls him to do. So we have this strong angel proclaiming a, a worldwide, a universe-wide search. Is there anyone worthy? Is there anyone worthy? And we have our apostle here who is on his face crying because no one answers. Then we have this elder coming and saying, hey, there is one who is worthy. I think it's worthwhile to note that when the summons for somebody with an answer to ultimately bring about true and final and lasting transformation comes, who will come? Nobody comes. All the philosophers, all the politicians, all the psychologists, all the, the, the pastors and pastorettes who have proclaimed a message that is contrary to the gospel, all of them who have come throughout all the ages, all the kings, all the leading men, All the rulers of the ages throughout all eternity, all the the, the fallen demons who have been deceptively lying to the church for ages, they're summons. They're saying, come on, who can come and do it? Who can bring about restoration? Who can carry out wrath? Who can truly come and approach the Father? And they are all motionless and still. But there's one. There's one that can come. There's one from the tribe of Judah. There's one from the root of David. There's one who has overcome and who can come and approach the throne. 
There's one who has put death under his boot. There's one who is worthy to take the scroll and execute the contents. This passage is intended to distinguish the Lord Jesus Christ as preeminent over and against everything and everybody. He's the king. That's what this intends to relay to us. And it's to Christ that we now look a little more intently. We've looked at the curiously intriguing scroll in verse 1 and then verses 2 through 5, this exhaustive search. Now we will look at the uniquely glorious Lamb in verses 6 through 10. John's attention is driven to the Lamb. Verse 6, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the Lamb, I'm sorry, and the elders, a Lamb standing as if slain. Now his attention is focused solely on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given a glimpse of him, and it says that he's between the throne and the elder. More than likely, he is in close proximity to the throne, but also close to these angels here. It's best to probably see him right in the center of everything, right there in the middle of it. And there's a description of him. Did you see that? A lamb standing as if slain. Jesus is the Lamb of God. This description is used with, of Him throughout the Gospels and throughout the New Testament, all over the book of Revelation and in the Old Testament itself. Think of Isaiah chapter 53, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before His shearers, so He did not open His mouth. He's the Lamb. Furthermore, the text says, that he is slain, standing as if slain. It's probably more literal to translate that as slaughtered. The lamb who has been slaughtered. This is sacrificial talk. The book of Revelation imports a lot of Exodus imagery into it. And here is precisely seen as affixing this imagery to the participle slain. The lamb appears as one who has been slaughtered. But... He's not dead. Look again at verse 6. A lamb standing as if slain. This lamb is alive. He's standing. He is victorious. But he still bears the wounds of the cross. The death wounds of Calvary have been eternally tattooed upon the Savior. And these will serve as an unfading memorial of the cross is intending to simultaneously exalt Christ for His great and infinite love and at the same time to humble saints like us for our infinite crime of putting Him there upon that cross. Furthermore, the text says, going on, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The seven horns represent power, His omnipotence. Furthermore, He is strong, the text says. Then it says that he has seven eyes. That is to represent his omniscience. He sees all things. The ever-seeing eye of the Lord, the one who created the eye, sees all things. Then the seven spirits, most would believe this to be a reference to the Holy Spirit, which Christ has dispatched out. That's to say there's not one square inch of this planet that he does not see. He sees everything. He sees inside of each and every one of us. He knows us all intimately. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Christ sees all. And if we could just come up for air here for a minute and consider what I believe to be an intentional paradox of these terms. Jesus has been described as both a lion, powerful, strong, 
peerless. And as a lamb, furthermore, a lamb slain. We sing often about terms like this, but I don't think we meditate on or consider long enough and ultimately exalt in these truths. There's a, a great convergence of his perfections, kind of, kind of rushing together. They're kind of like two rushing rivers emptying into one big gulf. He's a lamb and it's flying in here and he is a lion and it's coming together and they, and they blow together into a one big lake of divine perfection that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider with me, Christ is humble as a lamb. But as a lion, he receives and deserves all worship. Christ is submissive to the law. But yet he hearkens obedience to it. Like a divine monarch. As a lamb, he endures justice. But as a lion, he meets it out. He's seen as the omnipotent one when he heals, calms the seas, and casts out demons. But then as a lamb, he is unable to carry his own cross. He's beaten mercilessly. He's breathless, parched, and crucified. He walked on the sea, but he's devoid of strength as he carries his cross. He appears beaten by the devil as he died upon Calvary, as a lamb. But never has he appeared so strong as a king as when he crushed the serpent under his foot, and death and sin with it. I think it's intended that you and I see this, this paradox together and, and we see this puzzling convergence of all the divine perfections coming together in Jesus Christ and they come rushing to a glorious head upon the cross. He's the Lamb who satisfies justice, but as the King, He meets it out powerfully and perfectly. Take time to meditate on Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 this week. He's a lion. He's a lamb. He's your king. He's to be feared, but he's to be, to, be, to be loved and approached. He's transcendent as a king. You don't even want to be in his courts, but as a lamb, he welcomes you in as the shepherd of your souls. He's the one who will make so many cry as the rocks will fly down, as hundred pound hail bombs will come up. You thought those things we had this weekend were big. Read the end of chapter 16. Hundred pound hail bombs coming. That'll do some, some damage on our houses. He's the one who executes that, but then he wipes away every tear. Furthermore, in verse 7 here, it says, He came and He took the book out of the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. It is intensifying now as the Savior, the Lamb, is walking up to the throne. He is walking away from the angels, this, this, this heavenly citadel that is surrounding the throne singing, and He is walking to the throne, and He is going to take the book out of His hand. Just, just imagine the scene for a moment. No doubt John's tears are turned to joy. And he's going to come up and he's going to take it from the Father's own hand. I mean, there have been a lot of build-ups for various events in history, and some rightly so, and some not rightly so. I don't care what the event was. This trumps them all. There have been build-ups for events, but this is the one here when the Savior is taking those steps to the throne of God to take the book which He's going to open and execute and mete out justice and bring about His kingdom. And it's going to be to the everlasting joy of all the saints and the everlasting exaltation of God the Father. Just think about that for a second. Everything has been pointing towards this all the time. The cross is even pointing to this when the Son will get the glory and then bow down, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, and give it right to His Father. all about this and how do you respond to this i think just like the angels look at verse 8 
when he, that's the lamb, had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Jesus comes and takes the book and immediately the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down. And this just seems right, doesn't it? Here's the king and he comes and takes the book. What are you doing standing, angel? Get down. And they fall down. They have their face pressed against the floor of heaven. If there's ever a question about Jesus being God, I think Revelation 5 should pretty much end it. God is worshipped in Revelation. God is worshipped in the Bible. This is heaven we're talking about. And Jesus is receiving the praise and worship. And what happens? He stands there and He takes it. He loves it. They're holding on to a couple of things. One is a harp. And this would probably be a good time if we have these fanciful thoughts of an angel in heaven is floating aimlessly above the clouds, playing their little harp and just waiting through all eternity like some type of toilet paper commercial. Just get rid of that. It's a caricature of an angel. What we have here is an angel. And these guys are strong. We've already learned this. But they have a harp. And the harp is... It's used traditionally. He's importing the Psalms language here, but along with the lyre to, to, to express joy and gladness. This is to say he is overcome with joy and gladness as the Lamb comes and takes the scroll. So this angel is infinitely excited, if you can put it that way. His angelic joy is off the charts. Their angelic joy is off the charts. And, and even more, he has a golden bowl. And this is related to the Old Testament sacrifice picture here. And what is contained in the bowl? What does it say? They had a harp, verse 8, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So here we have Jesus Christ engulfed with the worship of heaven. And He's surrounded by prostrate angels on their face, making joyful, glad sounds, songs unto Him. And He's being enveloped in an incense cloud of the prayers of the people that He has purchased with His own blood. And it's just, just wafting up like this around Him, all of the incense around Christ. And He's being exalted. Doesn't this make you want to pray more? I mean, just, I want, I want more glory going to Christ, more unto Him. He's standing there in the incense cloud of His own merit with the, the praise of His people just coming right up to Him. I want to pray more biblically, more faithfully, more persistently, more passionately, more Christ-centeredly. Just, this is what happens to your prayers as a believer. They are, they are pushed up in the presence of Christ and He just, in His, in His divine nostrils, taking it in and just being glorified. And these angels, how about these guys? They're not redeemed. They know nothing of personal grace, just reflective grace in which they marvel at and they press their face against the floor of heaven. And as First Peter says, they long to look into the things of the gospel. What do they do? They put believers like us to shame because they tirelessly make much of the risen perfect lamb. What gets better? Look at verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. In the previous chapter, they sang a song to God, the Father of His greatness. Now they're singing a new song of the Son and His powerful and glorious work. It's a new doxological hymn centering on Christ. His work of redemption. They sing of His worth and they sing of His work. 
Look what it says, worthy are you. And this, this really is the, under, the whole theme of the song and really the whole theme of chapter 5. Worthy, worthy, worthy. This is what they're saying. These sinless angels with perfect holiness reflect with utter precision the holiness of God and they are saying, worthy are you, son. You, O Christ, are worthy. You alone are worthy to open the book. You alone possess the qualifications and the ability to open it. You alone can execute its contents. You alone are worthy. And they extol the Savior's infinite worth. Christ is worthy. Furthermore, these angels extol the Savior's glorious work. They sing of the fact that Christ was slain. He was slaughtered. The same term is used. centers upon the cross where the Lamb of God was slain for the sins of men. Furthermore, they sing that the Lamb has purchased a people. You see that? The thought is of redemption of sinners like you and like me. And we understand marketplace terminology. You go to the store, you pay some money, and you get a product, you take it out. Well, the biblical idea here is that Christ would go into the, to, to pay the penalty for sinners to redeem sinners out of the slave market of their own sin. So he offered the payment. What is his payment? What does the text say? Look at verse 9. His blood. He paid for sinners with his own blood. There's only one currency in heaven that God will take, and it is crimson, red. It is the flowing royal blood of the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. There is only one way which God will take and receive forgiveness, receive atonement for sin. It is Christ Jesus. I want to point out a couple of things here just as we work through this text to make sure our theology is formed by the text and not our theology forming the text and interpretation. There are two verbs I just want to draw our attention to here in verse 9 to pay attention strongly to, and, and that is slain and purchased. Grammatically, they both indicate they were a past and completed action. The events happened at the same time. Christ went to the cross and He was slain and He purchased people. The redemption that Christ accomplished is as complete as the cross which He died upon. He redeemed His sheep while He made payment upon the cross. Even more, this slaying was passive. Christ was slain. However, the purchase was active. He purchased. So when God the Son laid down His life, He was slain, or He was consumed by divine wrath, but He Himself purchased a sinner like you and like me. He bought His sheep on the cross. Well, why did He do this? Look at verse 9. You purchased for God with your blood. Who's the primary beneficiary of the atonement of Jesus Christ? What does the text say? It's God. Christ purchased sinners for God. The prime motivation for the accomplishment of redemption is the glory of God. We're the recipients, but we're not the primary end of salvation. God went to the cross to purchase a people for His Father. Those whom the Father has elected before time, He went to go pay their penalty, and then He is going to go and apply the merits of His redemption. 
If you're a Christian here today, you're saved from God, that is from His just and holy wrath. You're saved by God, that is by the sacrifice of His Son. And you are saved for God, that is for His delight and His praise. I mean, this is pivotal. If, if we understand the Christian life in this way, our compass will not be oriented to our own navels. And every passage of Scripture is all about us. But rather, we will be calibrated with divine precision to the glory of God knowing that God has done what He has done in Christ so that He would get the glory that He rightly deserves. And if we're true Christians, we love the fact that God is glorified. And there is our true joy in the glory of God. The text goes on to say, show us the benefits for whom He has purchased. Verse 10, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Now this helps to use the, to, for us to see the solidarity between those He redeemed and those who He makes to be priests there's a connection in verse 9 he divided for a particular group of people out of the world and in verse 10 we see these same people being applied with that redemption that he bought for god has made them who is the them those whom he has purchased and what do they do to become a kingdom of priests to god and with divine certainty the only future tense here in this passage is that they will reign they will indeed reign with the certainty that is tied to god himself This is the coming kingdom where Christ's people will reign with Him. They will have immediate and special access to the Father. They will reign with the Savior. This is just a glorious song constructed in heaven by these angels. Have you ever noticed that whenever we get a glimpse into the pulse of heaven, it is intensely God-centered, cross-boasting and passionately praising? Have you noticed that? I mean, think of Matthew chapter 17 when... When Peter goes up upon the mountain and he takes with him Peter, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus goes up upon the mountain of transfiguration. He takes with him Peter, James, and John, and they go up upon the mountain. And all of a sudden, two, two Old Testament saints show up. Who comes? Moses and Elijah. And Luke chapter 9 says that Moses and Elijah are appearing in glory and they were speaking with Jesus. And what were they talking about? His departure, his exodon in the Greek, his, his exodus. That would be his cross, which he was soon to accomplish. And here's Moses, he's coming from glory. And you think he might want to come down and tell Peter about the Exodus, how all of Pharaoh's people washed up on the sea like seaweed. You can talk about that. That was a great scene. Moses says, no way. I've been to glory. I've seen God the Father. I'm, I'm, I'm coming back. What am I going to talk about? My little e Exodon? No way. I'm talking about the big e Exodon. I'm talking about the cross. I'm talking about everything that that pointed to. He's intensely cross-saturated and Christ-boasting. That's what happened when people go to heaven. That's what it's all about. It's exalting the Lamb. It's chapter 5 on steroids. That's what it's all about. So how might this apply to you today? How might the reality of heaven's infatuation with declaring the infinite worth and beauty of Christ intersect with your life today? How might that apply? That's what heaven's going to be like. If this doesn't appeal to you, I'd get to check your spiritual pulse. If this seems like it's kind of boring and you say, maybe I'd rather be flying on a cloud with an angel in my caricature of heaven than standing before the throne of God with our face planted on the ground saying, glory, worship, honor, praise due to Him. That's what heaven's like. That's what our lives should be like, anticipating that so Christ to be worshipped and glorified. I know for certain that when we get there, we'll find out that we have far too little valued the blood of Christ and far too lightly taken the cross, far too meagerly exercised grace, far too less frequently prayed, far too lightly anticipated His coming. Because these angels that are there before the throne serve as a a stinging rebuke to us all. 
don't they? Because they've never felt one single ounce of sin-induced guilt in their existence. They have never known the infinite joys of forgiveness. They have never asked Jesus to forgive them of their sin and known by the Word of God that it is true. They've never clung to the promises when they will reign with Him because they've been changed and transformed. Yet they sing, they shout, and they long to look into the truth of the gospel. These people make, these angels make us look horrible. And we're the ones redeemed. They sing, they shout, they long to look into the truth of the gospel. May the glory of Christ convict you. May it arrest you. May it ignite you. May it sustain you. May it pervade you. May it actually consume you. Because that's what heaven is all about. Consumed with the glory of the Lamb. I cannot imagine what would happen if God did this to individuals in this church. If He would, if he would by His grace, just remove the shiny wrappings of this world and just drop on our tongue a tiny taste of the glory of Christ as indicated in this world, in this word, this, this place would be turned upside down. This is how we need to pray. Oh, that we would see more of Him, that we'd see more of Christ. We move on now to the final Christ-exalting scene here in verses 11 through 14. This diverse but single-minded congregation John's attention is directed to angelic voices. Look at verse 11. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. We've read of the living creatures and the elders with their close proximity to the throne. We've heard their voices unite in Christ-centered praise and, and now many angels join in. Well, how many? How many angels do you see, John? John says many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. It sounds like something my kids would tell me. Just more than I can count. So many. Just lots. That's the point. It's not to give us an exact number, but rather to relay the fact that there are so many there, there are too many to count. They're all assembled around the throne. And what are they doing? The text says they're saying something. There's actually considerable debate whether or not they're singing or saying. I just, I just, you know what? It's easy for me. They're rapping. That's what they're doing. Angelic rap around the throne. That's what's happening. I don't know. They're, they're probably singing. It's the same word that's used in, in Luke's gospel when the angels erupt in mid-heaven and they proclaim, they're saying, they're singing, glory be to the Lamb. The theme of these is the same. Look what it says in verse 12. Their loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And it indicates they keep saying it. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And it just they just throw the and in, in the original just over and over again as it's translated here. And, and, and. Just like he's building a tower of praise to Christ. Not that he needs these things ascribed to him, but the, because these things are true. And to, to say these things about him magnifies him. All of these angelic hymns point at the worth and value of the Lamb. But notice who they're singing to. Whereas the first section of songs are talking directly to the Lamb, this is actually in the third person instead of the second person. Notice what it says? Verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. They're pointing at Him. Saying, Worthy is He. 
I think the symphony of angelic voices shifts to a mode of heralding Christ's value. I take this to mean they're, they're proclaiming the worthiness of Christ to all who will listen. People like us. They're coming up behind us, giving us an angelic pat on the rear and saying, Worthy is Him! 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 That's what they're doing. Listen to this. They're, they're turning up their voices and saying, Christ is valuable. He's to be treasured. He's glorious. He's worthy. They're, they're trying to, to convince you and I how valuable He is. That's what I think they're doing. Look at the Lamb. That's what they're saying. They're contending for His supremacy over everything and everyone. And what do, they, what do they ascribe it to? It's to the Lamb, verse 12, that was slain. The one who was slaughtered. The one who has accomplished redemption by the Son of God, for the people of God, to the glory of God. He is the centerpiece of, of heavenly praise. They talk about His power, His riches, His wisdom, His wealth, His might, His honor, His glory, His blessing. They magnify His name. And I wish we had time to unpack those here, but we don't. Just imagine what this sounds like. You've been to the beach probably and heard the waves, how loud the waves are. Maybe to use a more appropriate illustration here in light of the last weekend, imagine standing in the middle of the eye of a tornado, but just remove the impending danger of it. Just increase the, 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 the loudness of it. The decibels. Too many angels to count. The 24 elders. The four living creatures surrounding the throne and just yelling, worthy, worthy. I've been to concerts and felt the bass in my chest. I've been in some vehicles and felt the bass in my chest. I've, I've heard loud noises. But this would take the cake. You're around the throne of God and they're doing exactly what they're called to do. And they are there with a loud voice proclaiming the very beauty and worth of Christ. I, I can't resist the urge to point out again that these angels are using their outside voice. They're loud. They're shouting. I picture them with veins in their throat coming out, just heralding His greatness. They're loud. They're passionate. They're very Christ-centered. If you survey the praise in the Bible, particularly the book of Revelation, you'll see that God likes it loud. He is on the right hand of the dial so to speak. And I know it makes some of us here in the Midwest a little bit uncomfortable. But friends, in light of the magnitude of what we're singing about, the audience unto who we are singing and His infinite worth of, of what He has done and the biblical precedent to turn up the notch and to sing loudly, we probably should be singing with a little more passion and enthusiasm and excitement. I'm not talking about emotionalism just for the sake of doing it, but we should probably have a fire burning in here that actually erupts when it's connected with truth about Christ. We should probably not be singing songs to Christ with the same level of intensity that we do the national anthem at a baseball game. We should not be consumed with the lint in our pockets or the amount of nickels we have or the plan for the afternoon. We should be singing to the Lamb that was slain. We should be singing loud. We should be singing passionately. We should be singing with, with excitement. It's okay to get excited. God likes it. Apparently, He approves of it. He encourages it. He's given you a voice. And He's given you a, a heart to sing to Him. Sing loud. Praise Him. He can take it. He loves it. Final anthem of praise is sounded now before the Lamb, before He opens the scroll and carries out the contents. Look at verse 13. 
And John intends to show us the broadness of the scope here. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. That is to say, exhaustive. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. This symphony of heavenly praise is is expanded to include, as John writes, every created thing. Like the many rivers and streams that we see that flow into the Mississippi River to contribute to its content. Here, the groanings of creation, beset by the curse of sin, the praise of all the redeemed from the nations, tribes, and tongues, the hymns of countless angels, all flow together into a rushing river of single-minded, passionate, divine exaltation. That is the picture here. The reality of this fact is breathtaking. Center stage, center glory, center exaltation, Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the fact that the Lamb and the Father are joined together here really served to capstone this. It says in verse 13, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Chapter 4 was all about the Father getting His worship. Chapter 5, all about the Son. And here they are together. To them, to the one God, the only God, be glory. Dominion forever and ever. Amen. And that is our prayer also. May this happen. And all will say, and all will agree on one day that God is to be worshipped. You either say it induced by divine grace as you cling to His feet and worship Him with praise overflowing. Worthy are you, Christ, for saving my soul. Magnify His greatness as your Savior and your Lord, and you'll say it under compulsion. Magnifying Christ's greatness as you are under His boot of judgment. And you will agree, Christ is powerful, whether I like it or not. Because every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is whether or not you will do it in judgment or you will do it in praise. And if you do not see Christ as worthy now, He will not be worthy then. If Christ is not yours and you're not Christ, do not squander another minute on this earth. Don't go on acting like you have all eternity to make a decision to Christ, to follow Christ, because you don't. Every single one of us in this room will give Him praise in the next life. Every single one of us with absolute certainty. The question is, if you'll be grabbing his ankles and praising him, or you'll be under his boot in judgment. The cross is powerful enough to save you. All who will come to him, he will not cast out. The reason why, if you sit here unconverted, is because you love your sin and you don't love Christ. As an ambassador for this Christ, I would say to you, run to Christ and find your forgiveness in Christ and in Christ alone, while there's still time. Because this day is ever encroaching. Christ will get His glory by this diverse but single-minded congregation. Well, as I said at the beginning, we, we have no right to be here. So let me ask you a question as we close. What would the divine agenda be in giving this to you? In writing this down and saying, here, read. Read of Christ. Why would He do this? He's surely not obligated to. It's nothing less than the priority of God to set His own glorious Son before you in all of His manifold splendor, radiating 
the effulgent glory of God with all the angels and saints proclaiming with unreserved fervency, Christ is valuable, Christ is worthy, Christ is glorious. And he intends to put that before you so that you might agree and say, Amen. And it's seeing him as he is, you might say, Amen, he is glorious. And your affections might be powerfully and radically stirred that your life would be consumed with Christ. I mean, unbelievers and believers alike. That is the goal. Believer, he wants you to love Christ. He wants you to delight in him. We are not where we need to be as individuals and certainly as a church. We do not see Christ like we should. We are, we are put to shame by these angels who understand and see. So this passage is suitable for me and for you this morning. And we're given a suitable model of response in verse 14. How do you respond to this? And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Our Father, there's no doubt that heavenly praise is God-centered, cross-boasting, grace-magnifying, lamb-exalting. It is no question that our lives here think far too little of the cross. Father, we spent too much time belittling your glory as unconverted people. Father, I pray you would give us a glimpse of the glory and an understanding of truth and that you would help us by your Spirit to purge the sin that clogs our own arteries of praise and that we'd come face to face through the pages of Scripture with the risen one, the one who was slain, who purchased people like us from the clutches of sin and defeated death and destroyed it and who now sits engulfed in the incense cloud of his own merit as the glorious sun. Let us see him. Let us exalt in him. Let us love him. And we do this according to your will and your pleasure and ultimately for your glory. Pray this in his name. Amen.